Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open Mic Podcast. My name is Caroline. I'm a rising senior at Columbia University, and I'm so excited to be hosting this series where we'll be talking about school and life and everything in between. Each episode will feature a new topic and a different guest. And today, I'm so excited to be introducing Zussi Ine. Zussi, thank you so much for being here today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'll just do a quick intro. My name is Zussi Ine. Um, or in Egbeniki, I am a rising senior at Columbia University. I'm studying political science and business management beyond the world of school. I'm a business and marketing fanatic obsessed with black owned businesses. So um, I do a lot of my work with like BLK Foundation and other organizations that fund black owned businesses. Um, I'm also a content creator on Instagram, YouTube and the like. I make content about Lux minimalist fashion as well as deaf awareness um so yeah um my tagline i guess my name the business value kind of comes from my passion for fashion for presentation and looking great and my passion for business um apart from that you know deaf awareness is a huge part of my identity um being a deaf black woman um and having a pretty interesting story um as to how i discovered my deafness um i've made sure to kind of keep people informed about deaf culture and 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 the best ways to treat deaf people in the world so yeah So Zussi and I have never met in person, but we kind of know each other through a mutual friend who is actually president of the American Sign Language Club at Columbia. So he introduced me to Zussi and said that she would be an amazing person to talk to. So I'm just really glad that you're here and I'm excited to dive into everything that you've done. Do you want to kind of share a little bit about your experience with deafness? You said that your journey was a little bit maybe like non-traditional or maybe it was unique to yourself. So how did that come about? Right. Um, so I think it was 2000 and it must have been 2008 when I first kind of started having these really weird dreams. Um, and, and they were like pretty dark. Um, they were pretty scary. And it was always just dreams of like trigger warning and content warning, um, like trauma drowning. So it was always dreams of like drowning and, and near death experiences. And I was like, what is going on? here I was like I was a kid and I was like you know I I went from having nightmares about little you know teddy bears running around to these pretty graphic um nightmares and I kind of went to my mother and I said hey like I'm having these weird dreams and I would be in her in her room like six days out of the week like in the morning just weeping my eyes out because I couldn't stop having these dreams and I kept saying to her like I don't know what's going on here my mom is a very religious woman (laughs) so she kind of she took a faith interpretation of it and she just she just told me that you know I should just not fear and I should you know stay strong but for me it was like no 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 you're not understanding like this doesn't feel like a dream this feels like a memory of sorts and 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 she I, I I got the sense that for many years she she didn't want to tell me something or let on to something so I went myself <laughs> luckily the NHS is free in the UK so I went myself at around 14 15 to the doctor and I was like hey something's wrong with me I don't know what it is <laughs> and I just need you to figure this out and I was like I keep having these strange dreams um, and I really need you to tell me if this has anything to do with these other problems I'm having. And he was like, he was like, yeah, <laughs> we took a hearing test and I took a couple other tests and he was like, you're deaf. And I was like, 
it, it, at the time, it made no sense to me because my understanding of deaf people was people with total hearing loss, right? So people who couldn't just navigate the world as hearing people. And I just, it was really confusing to me. So, you know, I went to my mom and I let her know all these things. I let her know the links between the dreams and stuff. And she was like, yeah, actually it wasn't a dream at all. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? She was like, yeah. And this was when I was like 15, 16, 14, 15, 16. She was like yeah that was a memory like this is what happened to you and then she told me about this near drowning incident i had when i was around four years old in in houston texas um and this incident is what my doctors believe of course it's hard to kind of link these things but it, it's what my doctors believe um caused trauma to my ears and and led to my otitis media so i have what is called chronic otitis media um so yeah so just kind of coming to this realization as a teenager that there was a whole culture world and identity that I had no idea I had but like would solve all my problems right so I just always had issues with communication always had issues just like going outside and there was a huge joke my family had because I would always be like what the hell are you guys talking about when you say the trees are swishing I was like that <laughs> Like they're not, right? So it, it just, all these jokes made me realize I just couldn't hear. And it, it, it was a weird realization to come to. Um, I always had an inclination, I had a feeling, um, but just to get that confirmed as a teenager really created a huge shift in my life. Right, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that too, Zussi. You know, it must've been, I mean, this was during your teenage years, right? So it must've been like a complete transformation in the way that you understood the world and your relationship with the world. And so I'm wondering, I was also like in preparation for the podcast, I looked <laughs> at your YouTube channel just to learn more about you. And I mean, I, I, I found this TED talk that you did <laughs> around the same time, I think. Yeah. And so was that before or after you went to the doctor to find out about your deafness? It's it that it's funny you've made that connection. No one has ever made that connection. And that was critical for me because I went through, when you do talks like that, and that I, there are TED, TEDx talks, but this was a part of TED Youth Day. So it was a little bigger than a, than a TEDx talk. It was, it was pretty important and it had some pretty big names. So it was a huge event. And there were like six or seven months of speakers training, right? throughout um, that year. So that was around the time that I found out and I found out while I was doing speakers training. So imagine finding out that some of your difficulties with speech are coming from your, your lack of hearing and thinking, okay, I'm going through a whole training on how to speak. This would have been great to know, <laughs> like, you know, it was like, it was like, imagine going through that process not knowing why i had all these difficulties and also honestly insecurities um that was one of the first times that i had spoken on a large platform like that um ted talks tend to like limit the amount of people that are in the room right um mm. but then it's streamed to millions of people um and and i was so intimidated by that so this was my first major platform and i was just finding out that like my speech impediments were the result of deafness um and i had to go through these this long speakers training to figure it all out so yeah it just all kind of <laughs> came um like an avalanche at one time <laughs> and 
was a lot. Um, and I don't think that like kind of intimidated me or like deterred me from delivering my speech. It was something I'd always wanted to do. So I just used it to help better inform me about some of the obstacles I faced. Wow, that's actually incredible. And I was I was also going to ask about your preparation stage for being a TEDx speaker, right? I mean, not everyone gets to do that and no, not everyone is brave enough or like, I feel like has the confidence enough to do that. So I think like having that event, like right in the middle of your speaker training is just a testament to like how you were able to, to overcome. And I watched your TEDx speech and it was incredible like you were 15 years old were you or I was around 14 15 I believe I keep getting the date wrong but I think it was November of 2014 mm -hmm. it was around that time either November 2014 or 2015 so I must have been 14 or 15 yeah wow. that's incredible because like I, I like watching I like listening to podcasts and like watching people speak and you're such a great public speaker so I, I really just want to <laughs> say that thank yeah you, thank you yeah I've come a long way I always say this I've come a very long way <laughs> I went I had an internship last summer and oh it was terrible there was a VP um and this isn't a major bank right a VP decides on his off day to look me up right so he looks me up and finds this speech right and then comes back and says it in a call full of hundreds of VPs from across the bank for the next two weeks I kept getting calls like I just watched your TED talk I just watched your TED talk and I was like what is going on oh my goodness <laughs> like, and it's like it's great because I was so happy but I was also so embarrassed <laughs> because since then I've done so much like training and work to like better my speech and like if you watch my speech it didn't get enough coverage <laughs> but it's called dreams and machines that i did at the british library more oh. recently like so much better and i've done so much more training but like no one ever sees that stuff <laughs> no <one> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no we'll be sure to check it out if we can have the yeah i think i'd be interested in listening yeah. and yeah and so did that do you think that that opportunity led to what you're doing now right you're really focused on social media and marketing right and entrepreneurship in general right because you're the business baddie and so <laughs> <laughs> how did that come about was that like during college or maybe even before right so that was much before. So I, I, my mother's an amazing woman. She's also a very terrifying woman. <laughs> From a very young age, she kind of, I, I say my household was like a business boot camp. It was like from a very young age, like I think from seven, we were writing reports on a, an industry or field of our interest and, and assessing the business landscape of that space. It, it was the weirdest thing for a seven-year-old to be doing. But at that time, right, I was, you know, watching my little Hannah Montana and everything <laughs> else. I was like, I love fashion. Like, mm. this is what I want to do. So I remember at that age, writing a report on the market share of, <laughs> of Marc Jacobs in the fashion <laughs> industry. 
And it, it was the most random thing. And my mom was just like, talk about all of the, all of the businesses you're interested in, right? And I wrote this long report um, about all of these fashion businesses. And I think that's, that's where it comes from. I think it comes from my mother's like, determination to make sure that we were business-minded people um, and my love for fashion. And I just thought, what is the best way to merge these two interests? And, and that's what developed into my Instagram because I was like, you know, I want to talk about fashion. I want to talk about all these clothes I love wearing, but I also want to let people know. <laughs> um, and, and, and this was a catchphrase I ran with originally, but I since scratched that you can be a baddie with a brain. Like you can be an Instagram baddie, right? And, and have this depiction of like being online and whatnot, but also be driven and be smart and be independent, right? And, and know what you're doing. So I wanted to combine those two aspects of my identity and I just love doing it. So I've done it since maybe I was 13 years old. So come to this point now, it's just really been passion driving me through it. That's awesome. And I'm curious too about, you're very like you're a very good marketer on social media and I know that you also really value in-person relationships based on again the TED talk from 2015 (laughs) so I'm wondering if that idea that idea still holds if there is a sort of like conflict between the two your online presence versus in-person relationships and how you reconcile that that's a that's a huge one So um, my huge thing with marketing that I tell every single one of my clients is you want to use social media and not let social media use you. And that's a huge thing. I got so much feedback from that speech and people were like, Zussi, you were telling people to step away from their phone? I was like, no, for real, because it's a vital part of marketing. I think people don't understand that the separation between the real world and the digital world is hugely important in crafting your marketing strategy and crafting your brand identity. You want to be connecting to the real world with a presence online. So for me, I don't see it as a tension at all. Um, and I encourage people to you know, use social media to you know, talk about your passions, talk about what you like doing daily, talk about your business this idea and and gain some traction, gain some sales from that, but also realize that at the end of the day, it's a digital world. You close the phone and there's a world out there that you can go outside, engage with people, talk with people. If your marketing strategy does not have a way for you to go and engage with other pioneers in your space in person, then there's a huge gap in your strategy. So I like to see it as a balance. And I, that's where I see that lack of tension happening when you balance the two. That's a really good answer. And I think that's something that maybe even non-marketers, just people who are using social media, maybe even just to stay connected or they're trying to gain followers. It's hard to, it's hard like once you enter, I feel to know or appreciate the balance or be able to get to that balance. You have to kind of identify that this is something that needs to be kind of, I don't know, balanced for lack of a better word, but just, yeah. yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I think everyday people, like with myself, I had that journey when I was younger. And it was like, it almost becomes like a an addiction to a drug. It's like you, you get these 
dopamine releases from hundreds of people liking your photo at 13 years old and you're hooked on that you're like mm -hmm. oh this must be some sort of validation of my worth and and just growing and realizing that's not at all what it is um you're just kind of using those those numbers as, as stats to measure someone's engagement um mm -hmm. with the stuff you're interested in that's kind of how I've grown to understand things how do you build confidence in starting these businesses and I know you said your mother was a huge influence and I'm wondering was there anything else like inside you how did you know that this was something you, you really wanted to do um yeah whenever I'm talking about business structuring with people the first thing I say is um, if, if your first objective is to, to make a profit and that is own, your only objective, you're going to face some difficulties. If your objective is to turn your passion into a profit, then you're going to be successful. So for me, it was what am I passionate about? What is the problem? And how can I turn my passions and that problem into a profit? Because I loved all of those. <laughs> I loved addressing the problem. I loved um, my passion for these things. Um, but I also loved money and I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna play. <laughs> you know, when you come from um, a background that, that is pretty turbulent, you're looking for stability. And for me, I always was like, you know, I dream of like starting a business and being really successful. Um, so for me, it was just being really passionate about specific things. Now that's marketing. Originally, that was like fashion and accessories. So I actually had a jewelry business um, when I was a little younger. That did really well, but the team disbanded. Um, so I decided to kind of shift my focus into other things. Um, so I've always kind of been passionate about things and thought how can I turn these passions into a profit um but I also want to say that I haven't always been like confident about these things like I, there have been many failed opportunities and one thing I'm not a, a, like ashamed to talk about is the failures um I ran a studio called Rue Studio London which is probably the biggest business um I've controlled um and it, I, I believe I was the youngest and and youngest of what youngest female creative executive in the dance space right so I was leading the studio at like 17 18 years old having meetings with like 40 50 year old men who looked at me like what is this kid doing like how is she doing this and it, it for me it was it was really trial and error <laughs> it was really just figuring it out knowing I loved dance that's another huge part of my identity I love dance I love the performing arts um and and that was a huge part of me and I wanted to create opportunities for underserved communities for black creatives for black dancers to be able to have a space that was affordable and ex and had experts in the room so that's what I wanted to do, but that didn't <laughs> necessarily pan out as I hoped. It became a far bigger undertaking than I, 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 could, I could take on by myself. Um, so, you know, I just kind of lead with passion and, and just take what comes. I'm, I'm a person of faith as well, so I, I leave it to God. Um, and a lot of my life, I've been afraid, <laughs> but I've just kind of stuck to my passions and stuck to my will and, and tried my hardest. Nice. I think it's awesome too that you're willing to reflect on things that maybe didn't turn out to be successes if we define it that, that way. 
I think it's important because sometimes you learn the most from something that didn't work out. Like, you know, what needs to happen in the next steps in order to grow even bigger and better. So I think that's awesome. Right. 100%. Mm -hmm. So I'm also wondering about how school is for you and how, how is Columbia and how is your major and all the classes? Right. So I am now in the thick of finals. So anything I say shall not be held <laughs> against me <laughs> next semester when I turn into a fanatic and I'm like, oh, I love Columbia. You know, <laughs> um, I think right now it's difficult. <laughs> right now it's a challenge because um, I'm really going to drop econ. That's <laughs> what I've told myself. I'm not, I don't think I can do econ. Um, uh, luckily, I got accepted into the business management special concentration with the Mendelssohn Center. So that's kind of a really unique opportunity where they select a few people a year um, to take schools with kind of business, Columbia Business School um, professors, ETC. So that, this, that's been huge for me. I've always wanted to do that from the day I got to Columbia. Um, so now I'm going to be taking some, some like corporate accounting. I'm going to be taking some marketing classes, which is really fun. Um, and some other stuff. And that's really like aligned with my interests. So I'm really excited to do that. Um, and the political science of things, people are like, where does that come from? <laughs> because all of my other interests, it's like, why poli sci? Um, for me, it's because I, I've always actually been interested in, in politics. Um, I was a, I was a debater for like a, like a competitive debater for most of my um, childhood. Um, so I always did like the model United Nations conferences. I always did, I did European Youth Parliament. I did like all of the big um, conferences and I was really involved in learning about politics. Um, and um, I just kind of used that to, to, to decide what I wanted to study. Um, and I, I wanted to study the political landscape because that had direct bearings on business. Um, and I wanted to understand why it was that, you know, black owned businesses are underfunded, why it is that black communities need black owned businesses to shape change. I needed to understand the landscape to build, um, but yeah, I'm super passionate about all of them. Um, so the business side of things and the politics side of things. Um, it is challenging. It is tricky. It's a, it's a high, <laughs> it's a heavy course load to take on, um, especially with trying to work with foundations and other nonprofits. Um, but, you know, as I say, like, it's passion that drives me and I will always like make time and figure it out when I'm passionate about something. Right. I'm also wondering, two majors, possibly two majors, and a special concentration, two businesses, your social media, <laughs> how are you managing all of this? And do you have time to maybe engage in any clubs on campus or other like right. fun hobbies? Right. Um, so <laughs> people, I, people genuinely think I'm not being honest when I say this. These are my hobbies. <laughs> These are the things, like, when someone's like, you know what, I want to go skating on the weekend. I'm like, you know what, I want to research Black-owned businesses in the real estate space. People are like, what is, like, why? I just, 
it's just what I love to do. Like I just genuinely love to learn about these things and 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 talk about these things with people. Um, so yeah, my um, nonprofit involvement, my businesses, those are all passions of mine. Um, so I just I have fun. It's a break from like work writing twenty five page papers for me. Like that is my form, like my outlet. I also have other outlets. <laughs> um, I am involved on campus with Columbia's Black Pre-Professional Society. I was formerly the social chair of Columbia's African Students Association and I'm involved in other um, um, campus campus organizations such as um, the ASL club um, in different ways so I try my hardest to like do a little bit of of everything (laughs) Um, but but do everything I'm passionate about so that it isn't too like daunting for me Um, I as I said business boot camp. My mom was a really strict tiger mom um, and, and she didn't let anything slide. So um, I, I believe that a lot of it is down to discipline, right? I try to wake up extremely early. I try to kind of stay focused on what I have to do. I have pretty like <laughs> intense productivity schedules. If you saw all my planners and like my maps, you would think I was insane. Um, but it's like, I try my hardest to like stay on top of things and stay action oriented and goal oriented. And that's kind of how I try to keep balance, but it is difficult. And there's some nights when I get, you know, four hours sleeps, but it's like, for me, all of it is really worth it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it is the discipline probably like growing up and being used to kind of Mm. setting these goals for yourself and then meeting them or trying to meet them. Right. And then like setting new goals along the way. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And I like that you, I don't know. I mean, you enjoy what you do, which is the most important thing. I think like if people don't, then it is considered work, but then if you do, then it's a hobby, but also Mm -hmm. like part of your work. Right. 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 hundred percent. Yeah. Did you start learning American sign language at 15 or 14? Yeah, this is the thing. This is the thing. I'm really involved in ASL because I don't know American Sign Language. (laughs) So um, for me, obviously, um, with like a lot of my life being around the world. So I, I was in Lagos for some time, Lagos, Nigeria. I was in Abuja, Nigeria for some time. Um, I was in London, of course. And then I was in Houston and I was in a bunch of places. So I never really got the opportunity to learn one sign language. So it was always shifting, whether it was from, I think Nigeria is predominantly NSL, which is Nigerian Sign Language and American Sign Language, which is kind of what's taught in some of the nonprofit spaces. Um, so it was shifting from American Sign Language, Nigerian Sign Language, British Sign Language, American Sign Language. So I never got the opportunity. And of course, realizing at only 15, <laughs> all of that, all of these things, I never really got the opportunity to learn, honestly. Um, and I came to Columbia and thought, Columbia must have an ASL class. Like, it's Columbia, come on. And discovered that there were no classes. So I initially, started a campaign myself um, and I was gonna like bring science to see you was my idea um, and then I met with one of my friends Blake and he was like 
um, actually, there's a club on campus already doing that. So maybe you guys could join forces um, and try and get sign language to Colombia. Um, so that's kind of currently what we're doing. We're currently trying to work. Um, it's it's a committee called um, the Committee United Against Autism, um, and we're currently trying to work to you know get sign language recognized as a language by Columbia, offer classes in the college, in Barnard and more, and um, be able to fulfill the language requirement with it. So that's kind of how I've gotten to work um, with the sign language club. Um, it's not at all because I know anything <laughs> about sign language. I'm really bad at learning languages actually. Um, so, um, but yeah, I am currently really trying to learn BSL and ASL through my sister. My sister, ironically, my younger sister speaks sign language. So she's trying to teach me as well. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to learn. It's, it's difficult though. Yeah. Awesome. Is your little sister hearing? Yes, she is. It's, <laughs> it's the biggest, my the household is just the funniest thing. <laughs> she is, but I think just kind of seeing the progression of my life and just also having her own interests. We, we volunteer the motherless babies home in Nigeria um, and there are lots of deaf kids there. Um, so seeing that my sister's always like been really passionate about sign language and accessible learning and, and communication. Um, so she learned herself, she's, she's a really bright kid. <laughs> So she just kind of taught herself. Um, and, and so she's been trying to teach everyone else. Um, but we're just all old heads who, who are having some difficulties learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And kudos to her. Kudos to your sister. <laughs> when you were on person, uh, not on person, sorry, when you were in person, <laughs> yeah. how did classes work that way when we were before Zoom? Right. So, um, so this is a huge aspect of accommodation. Um, I would be ignorant if not to recognize that I was already going to face difficulties. One, because I was a woman um, at an Ivy League school. Two, because I was a black woman at an Ivy League school. Three, because I was a black woman on financial aid at an Ivy League school. Then four, because I was deaf. And I was like, how am I about to <laughs> circumvent <laughs> these plethora of issues? And I was like, this is gonna be really difficult for me. Um, so my first couple years, if I'm being honest, I deliberately didn't get accommodations. I did go to ODS um, at the start of my freshman year. And, and then they started asking me certain questions and, and, and I kind of got a, a sense of, of how things were gonna pan out. And I said, no, I'm gonna try this out for maybe a year and see how I will fare without accommodations. And, and in-person accommodations look like possibly having a device that essentially takes in sound and can caption your lessons for you. It looks like note-taking, it looks like a bunch of other things. Um, so um, it was possible to get accommodations at that time, um, but I didn't want to because I didn't want a professor, because you have to do this. I didn't want a professor to see my name, see, which is already an, an obviously African name. <laughs> and we, there's tons of research about the biases that come with that. And then also see that I'm a student with disabilities. And I was like, I really don't want to be perceived as less intelligent or less able um, because of my disability. 
university. So I decided that I would have to navigate my first year with, with a lot of difficulty, and I did. Um, I ended up incompleting my first year um, because I was facing so many difficulties. Um, and I just, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the accommodations I needed. Um, so I had to kind of just decide that I was going to um, apply for ODS accommodations. Um, and also it is an application. It isn't something they just give out. Um, so I had to get all the materials and stuff for that all from the UK, my doctors and specialists in the UK. So I had to do that. And, and it wasn't until the start of my junior year that I was able to kind of get that all together and, and get ODS accommodations. I just, I'm, I really admire like how you have overcome and just like, what's the <laughs> word? Prospered? Is that a word? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So going back to before, I know you mentioned that when we were talking about American Sign Language, you mentioned that you were really good at lip reading. Yeah. And just thinking about what is happening now with COVID-19 and like mask wearing, I'm wondering how that has affected the deaf community. Right. I had a really, really amazing opportunity to be able to speak with the BBC about this. Um, so that's the British Broadcasting, <laughs> Broadcasting Network. I'm like, what is the C Um So yeah, it's just the BBC, um, a news outlet, basically. Um, and I, I, I interviewed with them about this. I think a huge thing for me um, is less the mask wearing and more the mask wearing with all the other conditions. So if I can't read lips, right? Like normally I depend on being close to people, right? Um, one, because my mic on my, of course this is a podcast so people can't, <laughs> my mic is behind, right? It's like be, basically behind your ear. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to be close to be able to catch that sound, to be able to, to hear people properly through my hearing aid. And if I need to turn something up and turn the volume up, all of that is contingent on the mic picking up the sound. So if I am not only having to like be around mask wearers and not, I can't lip read, and I also have to maintain a, a, um, I'm trying to translate this into American six feet <laughs> distance, um, then it's difficult. And then on top of that, like the perspex glasses things, like shields that you have often like at counters and cafes and, and things like that. So it's like, it's not just the mask wearing, but it's also all the other things that are making it difficult. Another thing that I was actually gonna make an Instagram video about this is like, if I put on my hearing aid, right? And then I put on a mask, a lot of masks rub on that area. Oh. So they rub on where the mic is and, and disrupt the hearing, right? So it's like all of these things <laughs> going on at once, it's almost impossible to communicate with people effectively. A lot of my life and this, like a lot of people don't understand this enough, is a lot of my life I live in anxiety because, and, and, and actual like anxiety, um, because I'm, I'm like, 
trying to understand what people are saying and I'm like I can't get what this person's saying but I can't say excuse me one more time I can't ask them to you know repeat themselves one more time I can't you know embarrass myself by not being able to communicate with people. so a lot of my life I spend guessing you know that like moment <laughs> when like someone says a joke and you didn't hear the joke, but you just laugh anyway. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I live that every day. <laughs> like, and people need to recognize that because that is such a like challenging state to be in. It's like, you not only have to just like guess, take cues and be processing and like really like fast paces, it gets mentally exhausting. Like you just like, don't want to go outside because you don't want to have to like communicate with people like one thing that I always laugh about and people who know me laugh about is I'll often have both of my airpods in of course one ear <laughs> is not like that's not <laughs> how it works um so like obviously deaf people are a lot of deaf people don't use like airpods <laughs> so it's like um, I just have both of them in, not because I'm listening to anything, but more because that's like a signal to people that like, hey, don't come talk to me because I can't hear you. And that's the only way people understand that, like, because they're thinking, oh, that person's listening to music. I won't talk to them because they won't be able to hear me. But when I put my AirPods in, I feel like people won't come up to me. Um, and that way, like, I can like, I, I call it like an invisible cloak. I can like <laughs> be invisible and like go around and people won't speak to me. But like, that is like one of the things that you have to do because you're like, you're like terrified. You're like, I don't want to have to get into these awkward scenarios with people and, and like just embarrass myself and all these things. So it gets very isolating because you end up just staying inside. And and of course, with with the pandemic being mostly like, staying inside it's a double isolating factor because not only are you staying inside to avoid getting sick um but you're also staying inside because um you just don't want to go outside and have to like navigate all these difficulties finally a lot of deaf people also are immunocompromised this is because a lot of the deaf community is older and a lot of older people in the old demographic has more like underlying health conditions and, and over, overlapping with deafness. Um, so beyond that, there are deaf people, deaf young people um, who have health conditions. So this time is just a really scary and difficult time um, to be able to like, um, to just communicate with people, to go outside and have some semblance of normality, especially in a world that doesn't accommodate for deaf people already. Mm -hmm. Are there any, I guess, pieces of advice or pieces of just things in life that have helped mm -hmm. you to cope during this time? Right, to cope, um, I think, Communicating is a huge one um, because I started just like telling people straight up like when when conditions aren't favorable to me. So if I'm in a class and the teacher hasn't turned on the captioning, I communicate. I say my captioning isn't on, um, conditions aren't right. If these conditions aren't right, I won't be attending class even with friends like that's a difficult one um mm -hmm. because a lot of my friends knew me before I was 15 years old and a lot of them don't understand like my new exploration of deafness they're like I can't wrap my head around 
you being deaf. Like this just isn't, they can't understand that because I've communicated with them um, for most of my childhood. Um, so for a lot of them, it's like literally teaching them what deafness means, teaching them that, you know, deaf with a capital D is different from deaf with a lowercase d and, <laughs> and not everyone has total hearing loss and all these other things. Um, so yeah, it's just about communicating and about saying, and one huge thing is um, also taking some time um, and just understanding that like the world, especially in these conditions is like exhausting, right? And just taking some time to like do what you enjoy and like taking some meditation time or taking some time by yourself um, and just taking space from everything um, without like, cutting off the world um, mm -hmm. is also a healthy thing to do. Would you mind elaborating a little bit about, you're mentioning the different, the capital D versus lowercase d? Right, yeah. So I often have difficulty um, communicating this properly. So I made sure to like bring out like all of my resources from <laughs> nonprofits I work with. So deaf with a capital D is not only representing deaf culture, but is also representing deaf people who have been deaf for most of their lives or most of their um, learning years. Um, so yeah, um, I think that's an important distinction. And then deaf with a lowercase d um, kind of just, I guess, refers to the larger hearing, larger hard of hearing community um, and people possibly um, who identify as deaf with a capital D. So it's, it can be tricky to identify what exactly someone term calls themselves. Um, and it's also important to ask. Um, mm -hmm. So if someone, one huge one, right, is I actually have no issue with the term hearing impaired. Personally for myself, I, I don't mind being called that as long as that person doesn't have any underlying biases against mm -hmm. deaf people. Like they don't think that like, deaf people are like impaired, pers impaired persons but understand that it's just impaired hearing um, I have no issue with that but a lot of deaf people do and and consider that um, an, an antiquated and disrespectful term um, so understanding that you just can't run around <laughs> calling deaf people hard of hearing people whatever you choose but you have to ask um, and 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 they will tell you and they will explain to you why it is for me because I um, identify with the deaf culture and consider myself a member of the deaf culture, I will often use capital letter D. Um, most of the time I'll use lowercase D because I have to recognize the differences between myself and those who also had the opportunity to learn sign language from a young age and, and that kind of caused some difficulties in their, in their mm -hmm. learning and English being a second language. Um, and, and then hard of hearing, I think I've like, vaguely um talked about that hard of hearing is often like there are degrees of hearing loss so there's like mild moderate severe profound um and um hard of hearing usually refers to people who have mild to severe hearing loss and then deafness comes about with the 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 range of uh, severe to profound um and beyond um so i think that is just like a pretty intricate clarification um but most of the time just like asking <laughs> and people will tell you what they identify as yeah 
I've taken some ASL classes in when I was in high school. My instructor was deaf. And so like the people around were deaf as well. And people are like very nice and very open to explaining their culture to you as long as you're respectful of it. So I think not being like hesitant to ask, I think that's important too. Right. 100%. Is there anything, if we go back on campus, like for next year, is there anything that you haven't done that you want to do? Or is there any favorite campus tradition that you want to share? Oh, wow. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, anything I haven't done that I want to do? Um, oh, wow. I'm, I'm like really involved on campus. <laughs> I feel like I've done everything I wanted to do. I think anything else would just be like being with my Columbia friends again and like going to different places in New York. So just, I mean, the privileges of being in New York City are great. So just being able to go with my friends. I really want to go to the Museum of Ice Cream with my friends. Um, so like going with my friends to the Museum of Ice Cream or like, or like the Spy Museum or things like that I, I'm really excited to do those things um, in terms of Columbia traditions I am obsessed with seafood <laughs> I am super obsessed with seafood so surf and turf is has always been my favorite Columbia tradition and surf and turf anyone who doesn't know is like when Columbia has a giant like table of seafood and steak and all these foods um, and I just love it <laughs> And I, I don't stop eating on the day of Surf and Turf. So to think that Surf and Turf was like changed this year was the saddest thing for me. Um, so hopefully next year it can be outside again, but like obviously like still safe, right? And still like in a way that people can like experience it while social distancing and whatnot. And most people will be vaccinated, hopefully. Um, so yeah, I need Surf and Turf back. <laughs> I need it right now. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a great note to end on, a great and happy note to end on. And just thank you, Zuzi, for coming on and sharing your journey and your experiences. And it was great to talk to you. You're great. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on this and I look forward to like sharing this with people. Awesome. And if you are watching this to our audience on YouTube as a video podcast, then make sure to hit the thumbs up and subscribe and comment down below what you'd like to see next. And if you're listening to this on any other podcast streaming platform, then make sure to give it a like and follow as well. And thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.